0: Welcome back to the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. And as you know, I'm your host through the live album experience that we're going through here uh, in this Grateful Dead box set. And like I said in the first episode, I had a lot of skepticism about the need to listen to live albums at all, really, I guess, but uh, specifically in the case of A band like The Dead that I, you know, just never uh, got pushed to take this dive that now uh, I am embarking on. And as part of that, I have been listening to the four albums in our box pretty obsessively. And in addition to that, uh, the main thing that you're about to hear is like Amelia, I spent a good Hour and a half on uh, a ZenCaster call—that's a little bit of how the sausage is made here. But uh, a ZenCaster call with David Lemieux, who is the band's uh, official archivist. You know, is known for his Dave's Picks uh, of the best. You know, live releases. And you know, I—I I went into the interview with David Lemieux with you know most of my walls sort of coming down about. You know letting myself be swept into the live grateful dead world and it's like impossible not to become enthusiastic about the grateful dead after talking with david lemieux that guy he i said to people around me after the interview that he has forgotten more about the dead than i will even know about myself uh at the end of at the end of my life and it was a, a really great conversation and he is so enthusiastic about the dead that it's like impossible for you to come away with that with any degree of skepticism towards them. And I just really liked, uh, you know, everything that he had to say. So he's really, he's really like my main, my main, uh, I guess, Sherpa or <laughs> guide um, through the live dead albums that are in this box and largely my experience with live dead in general so this is episode two i know you rider in this first segment i talk with david lemieux about how he first got into the dead as a kid from canada and how he got his job working for his favorite band without further ado here's my attempt to get on the bus alongside david lemieux
1: all
0: complain thanks for taking the time to uh to do this with me um as a dead novice
1: oh it's my pleasure it it really is my pleasure i love talking about uh this stuff i love talking about the dead i love talking about um well i love talking about the dead but lots of other things too so it's Mm -hmm. really it's my pleasure
0: yeah, I mean, I guess you'd have to love talking about the dead if your job <laughs> is what it is, right? It, it it's, is it's better that you do love, right? Yeah. It
1: is. It's uh, it's an all consuming uh, thing for me, um, both professionally and personally. I'm I'm a huge deadhead, and, and it's how I approach everything we do. So uh, it's, I mean, it's a perfect combination of. Um, having my passion become my profession and it has not affected the passion I have for the dead at all. In fact, it's just grown a lot. So it's, it's pretty cool. You know, it reminds me of somebody who's a, you know, a sports nut, a complete sports nut and they get a job, uh, as either a sports commentator or, you know, a stats guy for a baseball team or something like that. It reminds me of that a little bit. So all right. sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's a really interesting analogy. And I think, the dead are maybe one of the few bands that there's like an opportunity for that kind of gig. Right. Cause of like the body of work that they left, like they need somebody that can be like, here's, you know, the stuff that everybody should listen to,
1: you know? Well, like, I, I think so. I think, you know, with so many um, different shows that they played and recorded, um, I, I think I personally think curating helps because a, a lot of bands let's say they go on tour and they play uh, a tour to support an album and if at the end of the tour you'll look at that set list, and it's virtually the same show every night. So curating, I think, is a little um, less essential in something like that if you're putting out a live album, because every show is virtually the same. So maybe you're looking for the one that maybe the performer felt was extra good, or you know, the, something cool happened, or something like that with the dead. Every show is completely unique, and, and that's not an overstatement at all. It is every show is unique, whereas you could see four or five shows in a row and not see a single song repeated. And, you know, there's very few bands that could do that, especially very few bands at the level of the Grateful Dead that would play 80 to 90 shows a year and be able to hit a city like Philadelphia, let's say, and do a four-night run in Philadelphia and literally not repeat a single song in those four nights. And that would be 20, 22 songs a night. Um, so, you know, it's a touring repertoire of 100 and something songs that they could draw on any time. And there was, um, you know, there's certainly uh, a format they followed in terms of how they chose those songs. But overall, anything could go. So, you know, you're both looking at set lists, but you're also, I think, primarily looking at performance quality. So it's it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, so to go back a little bit, I guess like the way that we're approaching this podcast is my co-host Amelia Sutliff, who's uh, 24 years old, uh, has no she has like no frame of reference for the dead, really. Like hasn't listened to it much. You know, is aware culturally, but like hasn't spent any time with them. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was like very much into American Beauty and Working Man's Dead as like a teenager, but found the live stuff. Uh, Like you said, it's like it's so vast and I just didn't know where to start. And so I guess to start with this, like where where does your deadhead fandom start? And then I guess specifically the live dead element.
1: Well, that's uh, a great question. Um, so when I was about 13 or so, as, as so many deadheads I know got turned on to the dead, it was through an older sibling, in my case, my brother, who came home one day with, um, you know, I, I was 13, so I was just getting into music pretty hardcore as we do. We kind of explore our independence, and part of that is how we express ourselves through the music we listen to. And I was, this was 1983, 84, and I was particularly drawn to older music the music of 83 and 84 and then into 85 really wasn't speaking to me very much, uh, with mm-hmm. with a few exceptions. But I was tending to listen to the older stuff, which at the time for me meant Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix. Those three in particular were taking up a lot of my listening time. And then my brother came home with uh, a Grateful Dead Greatest Hits album, uh, the one that came out in 1974. And I put it on, and I was really quite immersed in those other bands I just mentioned. But then I put on this Dead record and the first song was the first song on the first Dead album from 1967. And I'd never heard anything like it. And I'd never had anything that really spoke to me the way this did in terms of just, it really, it knocked me over. It just, I said, this is the greatest song I've ever heard. And then I listened to the rest of that album. And From that, I got into Working Man's Dead shortly after, where I went down to the record store and bought uh, the only vine, I was living in um, Ottawa, Canada, which at the time wasn't exactly a hotbed of uh, deadheaddom, so the, the record store didn't have a huge dead selection, and the only thing they had was Working Man's Dead, so I bought it. And I mm-hmm. went home and listened to it. And the first song comes on is Uncle John's Band. And then other songs on that album include Casey Jones and High Time and Black Peter and Dire Wolf and uh, Easy Wind. There were just so many good songs. I ate songs of which all eight of them really knocked me out, just really blew my mind. And then from that, um, I, you know, living in Ottawa, we, well, there's no mail order. We couldn't exactly go on Amazon. Um, but we'd go cross-border shopping. And that would be over to the uh, to the American side in Syracuse and Watertown New York which is pretty close to the border and that's when I got my first live Grateful Dead record which in my case was um, uh, dead set from 1980 it came out in 1981 it was uh, there were two albums that came out in 1981 from a series of uh, uh, shows they did in 1980 in the fall of 80 and one of them was an acoustic record called reckoning which is in this box set and then right. one was the electric one that was um, called dead set and i got that and then shortly after that on the next trip down i got uh, i got reckoning so now i got to hear these two sides of the grateful dead both from 1980 and and one was dead set the electric stuff one was reckoning the acoustic stuff both of which absolutely really really Uh, It really spoke to me. I loved both of them. And then uh, shortly after, then I ended up getting Skull and Roses, the 1971 live album. And that is when I kind of really started realizing how different the dead were live so 1971 for skull and roses 1980 material for the reckoning and dead set albums and then uh in the first couple of weeks of of uh, grade 10 so this would have been um no grade nine this would have been 84 i guess um early yeah late 84 um a friend alan in high school said oh you're into the dead my dad's into the dead do you want his old records i said of course and he Mm -hmm. gave me a couple one was from 1966 and the other was from Europe was the Europe 72 record which is again also in this box so now I was getting this range of live Grateful Dead and from there that's when I started hearing live tapes that uh, again older brothers friends older brothers who are you know much bigger deadheads than my brother was they started hooking me up with uh, live Grateful Dead tapes which is how so many of us really got to hear and understand the breadth of Grateful Dead and and you know tape trading with the Grateful Dead, it's amazing how quickly you can accumulate a pretty large stash of tapes and going from, you know, 10 or 20 into the hundreds can happen, you know, in a a few months or a year. And then at the same time, I was accumulating all of the live albums, which in this case, uh, the ones I I was missing, Live Dead, uh, which is uh, the 1969, widely considered one of the greatest live albums ever. And then Mm -hmm. uh, I already had Dead Set and Reckoning and Skull and Roses in Europe, 72. I was missing Steal Your Face from 19 76 some shows in, in 1974 um, and then also getting all of the studio records um, and there were a few holdouts for me in the studio record um, e- uh, area that I just couldn't find because they were out of print in the states and in Canada the used stores really didn't have them so those took a little while to get which is to say you know a year or two but then when you find them it's really exciting so mm-hmm. it was it was a, a pretty deep dive and it was because I was so passionate about the music that um, but but I agree it was overwhelming and that's why i was fortunate that you know when you're 14 years old and there's no internet um you know you have a lot of time on your hands to really explore this and you know i didn't i didn't drive i didn't know where to go i i was you know just starting high school so i um you know it wasn't that much work to do homework so i spent a lot of time listening to the grateful dead and and it, it, this and then you know, the the tape collection kept growing on cassette until about 1990. And then about when I was about 19, and then I got into digital audio tape. So I started over with Mm -hmm. dat tapes. And that was a whole nother world. So that got me into another maybe 1000 dat tapes. So I, I still have this collection of a thousand or more cassette tapes, and then, uh, you know, eight or 900 uh, DAT tapes that uh, I started collecting in 90, kind of kept that collection going through 93, took a little break for university, and then in 96 got really hard back into it. And then in 99, started working for The Dead, so all of that became kind of a moot point in that I really wasn't listening to my own personal collection anymore. I was listening to The Dead's personal collection.
0: So in some ways, it's like, by circumstance, uh of when you grew up like it was like the live albums were sort of like narrowly curated for you because of like the accessibility being an issue when you first started which i think is sort of like the opposite now where it's like you know every day you can like there's that uh website where it's like the best dead show from today you know like the on today's date um so that that's just interesting that like I think maybe, you know, the the way that uh, the circumstance like allowed you to sort of like toe dip, but then like you were able to completely dive in as you were able to find stuff.
1: Well, exactly, and and back then, like you say, aside from the live material, the the official output live or studio, there really wasn't a lot of curated uh, material in that Mm -hmm. we were tape trading, we would have a typed up tape list, and I, I still have a copy of my old one somewhere, uh, from eh, probably about 1988. And, uh, we would send that physical tape list, a 10 page typed up tape list before computers. So when you added things to your list, boy, it was a pain because you would either have to redo the whole list, which I did about once a year, or I'd always have an addendum of the most recent tapes. Um, so we were just, I, I'm, I'm personally speaking i was just going at the beginning i was going for quantity so i was doing as many tape trades as i possibly could to build up my collection and from there after a few years of that i went into quality. And that's when you're mm-hmm. really looking for the best sounding tapes. And then as you know, you're 16, 17 years old, your critical ear hasn't quite developed the way it is now that I'm 49 years old. Um, so it, it did take a few years before I realized the difference between a really great show and a show back then, you know, everything was the best. And now right. it certainly isn't. Um, but when it is good, there's really, I mean, to my ears, there's nothing better than the Grateful Dead on a good night. And that's kind of what, you know, as my tape, trading as the quantity kind of got out of hand, I started focusing more on quality. And and it was primarily at the beginning sound quality, but then it Mm -hmm. became more a performance quality uh, situation where I'm really just looking for the very, very best shows. And, uh, you know, and there is a bit of a consensus on that. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, I take advice from people or I do my own deep listens and and so, yeah, so now things are more curated. Like you say, there are websites that will point you in the direction. Um, there are, you know, there's so many live releases that we've put out officially through the Grateful Dead, through the archival release programs that we do. And then there are still the stone, stones of the Grateful Dead's audio world, which are the official albums they put out between 1967 and 1990. And, and to mm-hmm. me, those are things, it's funny, you know, I've got so much live Grateful Dead. I've got, I mean thousands and thousands of hours a couple of thousand shows uh to select from we've put out a couple of hundred shows more than that even um and yet i still go back and listen to these you know dozen and a half uh, official albums live and studio quite often i just i i find that to listen to, let's say a studio record and really find out where that song, uh, was kind of enshrined in the, in the Grateful Dead's Canon. And then from there, they took the deep dive into many, many live versions where they could take it mm-hmm. anywhere. So I still listen to the official Canon all the time, uh, much more than I think people would think. Whereas I will, you know, if I have 40 minutes, I will put on a Grateful Dead studio record. Or if I have mm-hmm. uh, an hour and a half, I'll put on a double live album, like Dead Set or Reckoning or Skull and Roses. Um, And if I have a lot of time, I'll put on Europe 72. So I still listen to those all the time and use them for reference in terms of, uh, yes, but particularly the live versions where uh, the live albums where I'm looking for a particular version of a song. The benchmark to me is the version that was put on a live album. So when we're talking Dark Star, St. Stephen or The Eleven, I always look to Live Dead as the benchmark for that. I listen Hmm. to China Rider or Brown Eyed Women or Ramble on Rose. I I look at the benchmark being uh, what's on Europe 72, Bertha war songs like that i look at skull and roses so i do that quite a bit where the benchmark is the one that they the band members uh specifically chose to be the one that would represent the band at that time that's the other thing is that the dead did change a lot so maybe war frat on skull and roses from 1971 might, uh, be particularly outstanding. Whereas maybe in another year, Warfrat, uh, was great, but not quite, um, the A plus that it would have been in 71. So, you know, I do look at different eras like that too.
0: Mm-hmm. So now that, uh, I am you know, completely set up with, David Lemieux and know his background and his his Grateful Dead bona fides uh, are, are established and uh, he's you know ready to share um, as much Dead knowledge as I was willing to let into my head in the call that we had together. Uh, we then started talking about the albums in our box set, and so we start with the first live album which is the third album in your box uh live dead um for those of you who need a little bit of context on this album we get into that in this segment but um some background is is that the dead up until live dead um, they had released a few studio albums that mostly lost a lot of money for warner brothers and sold very dismally but everybody knew that the dead um, at that point, were a band that needed to be seen for you to, you know, quote, get it. And the, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, with some amount of skepticism, let the Dead record a live album. And that event ended up becoming Live Dead. Um, They recorded it at, you know, partially at Winterland. And it more or less like saved the Grateful Dead. Um, they were probably on a trajectory to be something like, you know, I don't know, the Stooges or something. A, you know, a left field band that a label knows is, a, is an important band, but nobody is capturing what makes them special in the studio. And Live Dead ultimately did that. And so in some ways, nothing of what we're doing here would be possible without Live Dead being as good as it is and as well received as it was at the time and over time, of course. So in this segment, uh, me and David Lemieux uh, really get into Live Dead, what makes it special, uh, what to really listen for if you're a, you know, Grateful Dead novice and, you know, really what sets it apart from, the other albums in this box and uh, largely what sets it apart from the Grateful Dead's catalog. So here that is. Let's start with, with Live Dead, the album. Um, So how much of the story of like them nearly being dropped uh, is apocryphal that like Live Dead is the album that sort of saved them on Warner Brothers?
1: Well, you know, as, as the story goes, it's quite well known. The first three Grateful Dead records were not all that commercially successful. The first one uh, was recorded in just a few days. Um, I, I, I love the album. I think it's a great album. It's a great representation of the Grateful Dead in in 1960, early 1967 or late 66 as it was recorded. Um, the next one, uh, Anthem of the Sun was this kind of hybrid album where they recorded a lot of live versions of things, a lot of live shows, and then they brought them into the studio and recorded studio versions of these same songs, and essentially layered them on top of each other. It was much more than a, a case of taking a live version and overdubbing certain parts. It was layering. It was really incredible, and and it was a it was a pastiche, a collage of live parts of songs with studio parts it was a very strange album but very once again representative of the Grateful Dead in mid-1968 early 1968 and then A uh, A was an album that is beginning to lean towards the singer-songwriter form of The Grateful Dead, where it was Hunter's lyrics, and Jerry and Hunter uh, wrote virtually everything on there. Um, Phil did some writing, too, uh, musically, but it was primarily Hunter Garcia songs, um, but with um, some really wild uh, studio shenanigans where they really had a good time. They essentially recorded the bulk of Aoxomoxoa to eight-track um, uh, tape, which is to say you have eight different tracks of, you know, uh, uh, vocals and instruments. And that's, you know, for most bands, that's enough. And it was right in the middle of recording it that they realized that the, uh, Ampex had developed a 16-track machine and they scrapped those eight-track sessions and started over because sixteen tracks means you can really have fun. You can put weird little sound effects on things. So it was an album that, because they essentially recorded it twice plus, they had a lot of fun with it. They were in the studio for a long time, and it cost a lot of money. It put the Grateful Dead in a huge debt to Warner Brothers. And and then the album came out. It didn't do great. Um, once again, it's a it's a collection of really stunning songs, but. It didn't convey the power of the live Grateful Dead, which to anybody who had seen the dead at that time will tell you that that was where it was at. It was the live Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, in the summer of. 1968, the Dead recorded a live al- or Recorded four live shows, uh, specifically in the hopes of, of producing a live album that would, you know, finally show the world what the Grateful Dead were about. Now they recorded that also to eight track, and as they were kind of, I think, giving co- some consideration to an album. Once again, I was right at the time Ampex developed um, the 16 track machine, so they had Aoxomoxoa going and Live Dead at the same time. Um, But they scrapped those sessions from 68 completely. Uh, We've released them in other formats over the years because they're really good shows, but they ended up recording other shows in January, February, and March of 1969 in San Francisco. And those were recorded to 16 tracks. So those ones... I won't say they were uh, inexpensive to record, but they compared to Aoxomoxoa, where they spent months in the studio and hundreds of thousands of dollars. This was a case of bringing a sixteen-track machine to the Avalon and the Fillmore West, and recording, and then seeing what they had and mixing it. There weren't overdubs on it. Um, it was it was a straight up uh, record mix master project which is infinitely less expensive and Mm -hmm. then it came out and anybody around the country who had seen the grateful dead heard this record and said that's the grateful dead that i saw live and the album actually did very very well and it also uh for those people who had maybe bought the first three records and thought oh you know this is it's it's good music, but it's not blowing my mind the way I hear the Grateful Dead do live in concert. This finally did that, and I—I I, I certainly don't think it got them out of debt, but it restored—I think Warner Brothers' faith that hey, these guys know what they're doing, and it restored the Grateful Dead's faith that hey, you know, we're a pretty darn good band. The reviews were really good. Uh, Deadheads universally loved Live Dead, and then from there, it came out in the fall of 1969 and that was right around the time they started adding all of the the material to the repertoire live repertoire that would appear six months later, eight months later on uh, Working Man's Dead and then a few months after that American Beauty and kind of the rest is history because those two albums were recorded, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty were recorded so quickly um, that they didn't cost a lot to record and they did exceptionally well uh, commercially and critically so it was that plus all of the touring activities in 1970 Mm -hmm. that got them out of that Aoxamoxoa debt, but it really started with Live Dead where I think it restored everybody's faith, band and Warner Brothers that, hey, okay, you know, let's, you know, this is a reset because uh, the first album didn't do great. Anthem of the Sun is just weird. Uh, Aoxamoxoa is a great album, but it lost a lot of money um, for the band at least. And then along comes Live Dead and starts that reset that would culminate with Working Man's Dead Uh, American Beauty and then Skull and Roses a year later. And then, of course, Europe 72, Mm -hmm. another massive live success two years after that.
0: So you said earlier in our convo that, you know, Live Dead is widely considered, you know, one of the best live albums ever released. To you, why is that?
1: I think it captures, I think Live Dead, more than any uh, Grateful Dead album, captures what the dead were capable of doing on the very best night. And I think all of their live albums capture what the dead were doing at that time. And so I think dead set and reckoning are perfect encapsulations of that 1980 sound, uh, without a net, which is also in this box. And that captures the 1989 90 sound, very different from anything. And then skull and roses in Europe 72 capture those versions of the band Live Dead not only captures the 1969, we call it Primal Dead. It was that kind of late '67 when Mickey Hart joined the band, through mid '69 when they started kind of heading more towards the Working Man's Dead territory. Those couple of years of Primal Dead, it not only represents that absolutely perfectly, but I think uh, the 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 reputation the Dead had at this time as being the absolute best live band out there especially on a great night nothing could touch them the album did that and you feel the energy you feel the um, the authenticity of the Grateful Deads music there's no gimmicks there's no there's clearly structure. But it's um, it's uh, an improvisational structure, so it 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 kind of you. I've listened to that album. I, I, it's got to be in the hundreds of times. And I remember I even took a break in the mid '90s, as I mentioned earlier. I took a break for about three or four years of listening to, from listening to the Grateful Dead. I put all my tapes away. I put all my albums away. And the one album I kept out for those three years got very interested in university and other music. The one album I kept out and listened to probably once a week was Live Dead. And to this day, every single time I hear it, I feel I still don't know what's around the corner. And and of course I do. I know what that drum hit's going to sound like. And I know where Jerry's going with that. I know what Bobby's doing with his part and Phil doing all this incredible stuff. And yet it still gives me that feeling that I don't know what's coming next. And that to me uh, is so, I mean, the the best art is like that, where you get excited every single time you see it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So what are some
0: specific performances I should should pay attention to on Live Dead?
1: Well, the, the, the Dead's big improvisational um, uh, piece of music for uh, many years, really, from the beginning to the end, uh, and to this day when they go out as Dead and Company, is a song called Dark Star. And Dark Star is a song that has two... Very short verses, and most nights they would sing both verses. Um, Sometimes they would only do the first verse. Sometimes they wouldn't do any verse, and it would just be a dark star jam. Um, But it's a song that opens with a particular melody. And it very quickly veers off into unexplored territory where every version of Dark Star is very, very different. You know, I think of, um, you know, and coming from a background where I was listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin at the time and the song Dazed and Confused by, uh, by Led Zeppelin, their big... Um, 20-minute improvisational showstopper every night, but it was virtually, I'm not going to say it was virtually the same every night, but there was a very clear structure to that. Whereas Darkstar, mm-hmm. oh boy, I mean, you can listen to Darkstar through the years and it was played a heck of a lot from, from 1968 through 1973, uh, until 72, it was played a heck of a lot. 73 was played quite a bit, 74, I think they only played it about six times. And then they dropped it after 1974, and it only appeared a few more times until 1989 when it came back for a few years and became a kind of a three or four times a year thing. But every single version is completely different. That's not deadhead speak of saying, "Oh, this is the one where you know Jerry <laughs> played an extra three bars and that made it different." No, it's it's dramatically different, and um, it, yeah, that's why it's a it's a song for me. That's a very easy um, song when people say, "Oh, what are your best f- favorite versions of Dark Star? Can you recommend ten versions or whatever it is?" I can very easily recommend ten because they're all so different wow. and they can also depend on what the person i'm recommending it to what kind of music i think they would be interested in so um it's it's something it's a song that really is the 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 improvisational um directions are limitless and the one on on live dead hits so many peaks and it's so dynamic where it goes to a whisper quiet and then it builds back up and it goes into this incredible melody and each band member there's there's no soloing there's no okay it's bob solo now and now it's jerry's now it's phil's now the drummers are going to do their thing there's nothing like that at all it's just with dark star anybody on stand this is the way dark star always was anybody in the band uh, could take it in any direction. And if the rest of the band liked what they were hearing from a band member, a melody, a phrase, uh, a a tempo, they would just pick it up and follow them. And then they would go along with it. And that goes for any of the band members. The drummers might start doing something wild and the band will follow that. So every night was something different. And it's a song that just Bursts from the speakers in, in infinite joy. I mean, I I, I, have a, I haven't listened to the album in probably a couple of weeks uh, as we're recording this, and as soon as I get off, I'm going to put it on. It's uh, you know just thinking <laughs> about it, it's that great of an album, and so you know yeah. Dark Star takes up uh, a whole side. It takes up um, side one, and then uh, it, you know it's widely known as the Live Dead Suite, which is Dark Star into St. Stephen, into The Eleven. And The Eleven is a really powerful song, really one of the dead's most powerful in terms of when they were on, they were, you know, they could really take the, the 11 places, hit some really big peaks. St. Stephen is a song that was on Aoxomoxoa, Moxoa, studio version, very structured song. And yet uh, the one on Live Dead feels completely fresh, as structured as it is. And they follow the studio version very closely. Um, it, it's so powerful. And then after uh, the 11, uh, when you flip the side, you get Turn On Your Love Light, a Pigpen showstopper that at most shows in 69 uh, into 70, at least half of them, but sometimes more, um, Pigpen would end the show with a good 20-minute to half-hour version of Turn On Your Love Light that was Kind of, it, it had two main things going for it. One is Pigpen's rap, where he would just go into these incredible raps. You know, Pig was a, a showman. He was the front man of the Grateful Dead without a doubt. And in 69, in particular, because they had hired a keyboard player. To be a member of the band Tom Constantin. And that freed Pigpen up from his keyboard duties to just be a front man. So that would be Pigpen, front and center stage, no instrument, just microphone in his hand, uh, being the, the, the front man of the Grateful Dead. And Uh, turn on your love lights had you know pigpen doing his thing but it also had the band playing incredibly tightly behind him they weren't just kind of noodling around and laying down something they were playing really tightly and then the band would go off while pigpen took a breather and they would kind of jam the song for three or four or five minutes then pigpen would come back in for another rap and uh, and this one is just one of those 20 minute versions that's incredible and then you get uh another very important song for the era, Death Don't Have No Mercy, which, you know, will... God, it it gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. And then it ends with the traditional closer at the time, uh, and We Bid You Good Night, which is a a cappella thing that the dead did um, quite a bit in the era. And it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful way to end a show, sending people home with an a cappella uh, song of We Bid You Good Night.
0: Yeah, I mean, your your passion for this record has... uh, Of the four that uh, we have that I've done some listening to, I think this was the one that I was like finding the hardest to crack, but I'm like also really excited after after we're done here to uh, hop on, you know, put that out on and listen to it because yeah, your passion in explaining the 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 arc of the band sort of in within this record is uh, I think opened, opened some doors for me. So thank thank you. Thank you. Very
1: cool. And by the time they recorded this, they'd only been playing for, you know, three and a half years as the grateful dead, uh, Oh yeah, yeah, a little under about under three and a half years. And with Mickey, they'd, Mickey had only been in the band when they recorded this for a year and a half. He joined in September of 1967, and Live Dead was recorded January, February, March of '69. Um, so this is the this is the Grateful Dead. This is the Grateful Dead that would be defining this era until you know Mickey left in February '71 for a couple of years, uh, came back in 1976. Um, but this this is the version of the Grateful Dead uh, the a defining version of the Grateful Dead, I find. Um, this is the peak, or a peak, I should say. They had a lot of peaks. Um, but uh, this is really the heart of primal Grateful Dead. And as I said, um, it wasn't much long after they recorded this that they started adding the material into the repertoire in the summer of 69 that would become the material on Working Man's Dead, songs like Dire Wolf and Casey Jones and High Time, and then later in the year, Uncle John's band, Black Peter, New Speedway Boogie, and things like that. So it's, uh, it's a very transitional time a little bit later, but this is clearly the heart of primal Grateful Dead. The fourth
0: album in your box set and the second live album is Europe 72, which uh, coming into this experience, uh, I was told basically by everybody that I sort of offhandedly mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm getting into this grateful dead podcast. Uh, they were all like, you need to, you're going to love Europe 72. And you you need to just do that. Just listen to it now. Don't wait. And that was ultimately where I started, uh, listening to live dead was the first album I played was, uh, from Europe 72. And, Uh, I'll get into later about, you know, sort of where I am on my dead journey, but the people that told me to listen to it, they weren't fooling around. (laughs) It really is, uh, it really is an incredible record. And, um, you know, so from, for some added context for people who, you know, like me, uh, did not know anything about this record going in, in uh, the early seventies, after the successes of the first two albums in our box, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, the dead, convince warner brothers to let them tour europe which then as as it is now is not a you know financially sound decision for most american bands it is very expensive and hard to tour europe and especially when you're the grateful dead where you have you know upwards of 50 or 60 people you're bringing along as roadies and sound techs and you know everybody. That comes along with the the traveling circus that is a live Grateful Dead tour, and so they end up uh, going to Europe. This these like legendary set of shows that have since been almost like released in their entirety. That like basically every show uh, that they played in Europe in seventy two uh, was recorded and and called into this this incredible set, and it really like it sort of. Did the thing that uh, live dead set in in motion is that it made it clear to everyone who listened to it that you need to see the Grateful Dead and ultimately set them up as you know, an arena touring rock band in the mid to late 70s uh, here me and David Lemieux get into uh, Europe 72 and the, st- the story behind the album again, what makes it special um, and. Really, the big part here is like what to listen for um, because this is where you start seeing the stylistic differences in how some of the songs are recorded and how the band was playing them in 72. Just like New
1: York City, just like
0: The band that makes Europe 72 is obviously uh, much more commercially successful to the point where they're able to tour Europe, which has never been a cheap undertaking for any American band, but uh, it was like, more attainable for them at that point. So I know that like these European shows uh, are pretty revered, in the the deadhead
1: community correct uh very very much so yeah there was a consistency that was just outstanding
0: okay so why why this tour do you think like what what uh beyond like their tightness like you know what what led to this being sort of like the next I, i guess like next live peak you know that this was This is considered such like an important era of the band.
1: Well, you know, by this point, the band had been this version of the band for a few months. Uh, Mickey left February of 71. And so Europe 72 was about a year and a bit later. Keith Godchow on piano had joined the Grateful Dead in October of 1971 when Pigpen was a little under the weather, took some time offs. Keith joined on piano pig pen came back in december of 71 on organ and of course vocals and then so they hit europe with this new version of the band very fresh uh, you know keith's contributions were outstanding donna jean joined on the europe tour that's keith's wife um they keith you know joined as the piano player And then they realized, oh my gosh, his wife is a heck of a good singer. She should join too. So she joined as well. And then Pigpen had this renewed energy that you can really hear his energy waning as the tour went on. And after the Europe 72 tour, Pigpen only played one more song, uh, one more show with the Grateful Dead. And that was in June of 72. And you can really hear the fatigue setting in for Pigpen. But the first half of the tour in particular, and spotty throughout the rest of the tour uh pigpen was really on fire and in addition to that you've got a new batch of songs they hadn't recorded in the studio since uh american beauty in the summer of 1970 so they had a batch of new songs that they had debuted either in late 71 through the europe 72 tour so they were they had fresh songs um they had now really settled into the one drummer arrangement of the grateful dead now that P- uh, mickey had been gone for a year and change and then they show up in Europe and they were playing. They didn't play that many shows. It was a about a seven or eight week tour. Um, and they only did 22 shows of which one was actually a TV program in a studio. So it's not really a show. Um, and so it was 21 shows, um, mostly very small places. And that was another thing is that the Grateful Dead, um, I think like any band, but the Dead when they're playing in front of 2,500 people in a beautiful old theater, they're going to step up. And they did every night. And they were playing to people who were very, very receptive to the Grateful Dead. And these were people who might have heard working man's dead might have heard american beauty might have even heard live dead but these and they they would have come out these are german fans and english and french and they would have come out and heard this band that they might have heard on maybe two or three records that have that had been popular in europe and they were hungry for you know something that they knew was good because they would heard some records but they'd also heard the reputation of the grateful dead and it was a perfect storm of an of an audience that was hungry for them the band was hungry to play well And they were playing these little places and living together. You know, they brought 50, more than 50 people with them, their friends and family. And it became kind of a working vacation. Um, I'm sure it was a lot of work, but it was a working vacation Mm -hmm. in that all of their friends and family were there. So they felt comfortable. And yet at the same time, they were in their little Grateful Dead bubble as they traveled through Europe. And they didn't have the distractions of, you know, having to take the garbage out because it's a Wednesday morning in San Francisco. And that's what you do. (laughs) They were just, they, they focused on playing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, the places they played and the, the, the crowd that they brought with them, the 50 people as part of the touring entourage, um, and in addition to that, the fact they were only playing an average of every maybe three nights, it was not a moneymaker. And fortunately, they had convinced Warner Brothers... After the success of Working Man's Dead, American Beauty and Skull and Roses that came out in the fall of 71, they they convinced Warner Brothers to foot the bill for, if not the tour, at least a big advance for the record to help pay for it. Because I've seen what the band got paid. And there was absolutely no way what they were getting paid per gig could have supported the, this traveling entourage of, of this many people in two buses and hotel rooms and food and per diems. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. So fortunately, they did record. They did record extremely well. Uh, the recordings sound great. And they put out a, this, well, this triple album that's in the box. And it was a quite a massive success. And, um, you know, it, it, it featured a little bit of everything uh, from, for the dead up to that point. The dead had been a band now for six years or a little over... And uh, it it had you know some material from the big hit had the truckin it had morning dew from the first album widely considered one of the greatest versions of morning dew ever performed and then it had uh, a few other studio cuts from other albums it had cumberland blues from working man's dead and it had china cat sunflower from a but here it's joined to i know you rider a combination that would be a part of the grateful dead's repertoire for the next twenty five years
0: yeah and i noticed that that combo uh appears a lot
1: it does yeah it's a very popular uh combination and you know it throughout all erasm they dropped it for a couple of years From uh, 1976 through 79, they dropped it for about three years with one exception in 77 uh, on December 29th. But otherwise, they dropped it. But when they brought it back in 79, it was a very big part of the repertoire. You could pretty much count on seeing it about once every four or five shows um, from 1979 onward. And when they when they started playing this as a combination in the fall of '69, it was a very common part of Grateful Dead shows in '70, '71, '72, '73, '74. Very common, um, and this was the one again. It's as I said earlier. There's with the live albums. There are so many songs that I consider the benchmarks um, of, of what a live version of that song should be. So to this day, when somebody asks me, oh, can you turn me on to a good live China Rider?" I mean, I could dig deep into the archive or find something mm-hmm. uh, that we've put out. But, you know, start with this. Start with Europe 72, the definitive live version. The one that was that started it all in terms of most people's listening and then from there we'll get we'll, we'll explore the um the the uh the extra versions of it because that's when you can really dig a little deeper and say well check this one out where you know they stretch it out to 15 minutes in 1973-74 check this one out from 70 you know 87 where filled as this little 15 second riff that's very unique so um yeah, the China writer on here is fantastic. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then you get, you know, One More Saturday Night, a song that would appear on Bob's 1972 solo record. And then several new songs that most deadheads would not have heard unless they were seeing a lot of shows or, you know, there weren't a lot of tape traders back then. So, you know, songs like Jack Straw, He's gone, brown-eyed women and Ramble on Rose. These are new songs for most Deadheads, and these were songs that once again would be part of the repertoire for the next twenty, well, twenty-three years uh, until the end of the Grateful Dead, Um, and still are. When Bob goes out with either Wolf Brothers or Dead and Company, he still plays a lot of these songs, um, the the ones that are only on here. And remember, these songs there are no studio versions of them. This is it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those four that I mentioned. That's that's all there is for these original, you know, Garcia Hunter we hunter songs all there are are the live versions they never went in and recorded them in the studio and i can't think of too many bands that do that that's a very unique situation to to hear uh, a band who you know some of their most popular songs brown eyed women ramble on rose these are incredibly popular grateful dead songs there's no studio version of them you know, people ask, Oh, mm-hmm. what studio records are they on? Well, it isn't, and I can't think of many bands that you could say that. Uh, you know, it, there's a couple songs here and there, but certainly nothing to the extent that so many it's like Skull and Roses, the album that came before this. Songs like Bertha and Warfrat, some of the most popular dead songs ever. There's there are no studio versions of those songs because mm-hmm. they nailed it, they captured it. They said, Look, we got it. We, you know, they didn't put any studio ver- albums out for three years because those two live records in between kind of covered it, they, they allowed the band to uh represent what they were doing in 71 72 but in the live realm
0: for sure yeah um and so this this tour has been like pretty exhaustively like issued in terms of like the rest of the tour right like there, there are like the super cut version of Europe 72, where it's, you know, I've seen it on like Apple music where it's, you know, a hundred songs practically like, so like why, what, what makes like this specific collection and the, cause these versions are from different, different shows, like this collection uh, what makes it like, I guess more unique or m- more distinct than, you know, going and diving into all of the, the shows i mean is it the uh the thing you said where it's like this is the officially released one you know that like this is what the band put their stamp on as like this is the live version
1: it's exactly that it's it's that Mm -hmm. uh, you know they got back from the tour in uh, at the end of may of 1972 and they did some touring in the summer of 72 but for the most part they worked on this album. They worked on Europe 72 and they, you know, they did some overdubs. There's some vocal overdubs on quite a few of the songs. Not a big deal, but it, it is what it is. Um, but they spent considerable amounts of time listening to all 22 shows. And we've got the tape boxes. The tape boxes very clearly, the, the big two inch um, multi-track, their big, um, huge reels of analog tape. And every reel, which has you know basically an hour and a half of music on it, will have you know ten or fifteen songs listed on it, and it will have notations beside it. And there was a three star, so they listened to them all, and it would have a three star notation one two or three stars and the ones that were three stars um were the ones that got album consideration and from there then they started selecting uh which actual songs they wanted to use which titles they wanted to use and from there they found the versions based on the uh the three star situation um so it's uh they spent a, a heck of a lot of time both selecting the, the titles, the, the, the sequence of the album, the, the all the songs, but also the versions of them. And these to the Grateful Dead, these are the versions that they wanted to define that era of Grateful Dead. So I would always say when people ask me who, uh, who haven't even heard Europe 72, which is you know quite a few people, they'll say, where should I start in listening to the Europe 72 box set, which is 73 CDs, Um, it's 22 shows, it's over 60 hours of music, it's this massive box set, we did a limited run of 7,200 units in 2011, sold out immediately, crashed the internet. People will ask, look, I don't know too much about Europe 72, where do I start? Always, without a doubt, I say, start with Europe 72, the original album, start with that, and then from there... Uh, Then hit me up if you like it, which they do. I've never met anyone who didn't like it. If Mm -hmm. they had a curiosity about it, they generally would always like it. And then I asked them to hit me up for um, uh, specific shows. And or, you know, there's a couple of compilations that we've done. There was one called um, Stepping Out with the Grateful Dead, which was a a compilation of the England shows. They played England eight times on the tour, and we did a four CD compilation of just the England show. That's a great place to start once you've once you've devoured Europe '72. But I mm-hmm. I think uh, the better places start with Europe '72. Get a vibe, find out what it's all about, and then I'll recommend maybe three complete shows because a complete show is over three hours. So right. I'll let them you know. I'll say okay, here's here's the show you start with the most accessible one, and and they they might like it because it's. It's, it's just as accessible as Europe 72. Then I might recommend a weirder show. And that's kind of got some, you know, a weird dark star where they'd say 35-minute dark star. And that's when they can really dig deep. And then I might recommend something that's a little under the radar. So um I kind of always have uh something up my sleeve um mm-hmm. to recommend. But I always start, always start with Europe 72. And this goes back. 35 years when i'd meet somebody in high school and they'd kind of you know see the passion i or my friends had for the grateful dead and they'd they'd wonder what it was all about They said, oh my gosh you know you guys have all these tapes and all these albums where do i start i start with europe 72 and Mm -hmm. uh and that's it's a great place to start it really is and to this day i see you know twitter polls and things what's your favorite dead album where they'll give a choice of four records maybe two live and two studio and europe 72 up there with live dead often comes out on top just as a American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, do so.
0: Yeah, well, and the thing that I'm sort of realizing from this conversation too that I hadn't really considered was like, you know, the the perception of the dead is like the live stuff is where you know the deadhead is made. Like you dive into all of the the shows. Yep. But the like I I have found that overwhelming because there is so much. But I never just considered sticking to the the commercially released live albums. And knowing, like, the way that the band thought about them, it's, like, there. Like, that's, like, the perfect... They really are, like, a gateway into the shows, where it's, like, the studio albums are a gateway into the live albums. The live albums are a gateway into listening to the the show tapes. I would totally agree with that. There's, like, a second gateway in the, in the Dead fandom that doesn't exist for any other band,
1: really. Very true. Very true. And, and I feel that having, uh, you know, either... Curated audio, which is something we do um, officially through Rhino and the Grateful Dead, um, I think that's important. I think having a mentor is really good. Um, I know a a 14 year old um, kid in my neighborhood who's really into the dead. If, I, I feel that it's very similar to the way I got into it where He's getting into music. Nothing is speaking to him that's out there now. He discovered the dead. Um, and so I'm I won't say I'm guiding him. guy guys got really good taste, but um, I am able to once in a while, you know, if I hear a show that I'm thinking, oh, this kid will love it. I recommend it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I get notes from him about how great it was. So um, mm-hmm. I do think. But again, he's listened to the studio records. He's certainly listened to a lot of the live ones. As well as the archival live ones, the official archival things we do. Um, and then he's hit me up for show recommendations of live, maybe unreleased things. And that's when we could have some fun. Interesting. Yep.
0: Um, yeah, that, that just, yeah, it didn't occur to me that to think of the, the studio albums as like an additional gateway
1: yep. until this. Exactly.
0: A really important part of this entire experience that we're undertaking here for me and Amelia is for me personally, figuring out what people get out of being fans of The Grateful Dead. How does somebody go from just being interested to being an obsessive who's writing down shows, to check out, and can tell you the lineup differences between keyboardists and being a general obsessive? I want to know how you go from not knowing anything to knowing all of the minutia about the dead so i did what journalists do i suppose and i called up a few dead fans to ask in this segment i talk with eric renner brown an editor and reporter at Polestar, who if you follow him on twitter uh, you know is a very very public deadhead eric is younger than me and here we talked about how he got into their catalog, since for him, they've largely been an online phenomenon through his entire fandom. But the bigger portion here is talking to Eric about what he listens for when he's listening to The Dead, since I'm still working out the differences between eras, albums, and everything else, all the minutiae. So here's Eric York what was like the thing when you first like the first thing to click i guess when you started listening to live live dead like what really jumped out to you that like this is this music that you're gonna obsess over for the rest of your life
2: yeah um well so europe 72 is amazing um because i feel like that's that's in terms of the their live catalog that's where you have a lot of songs on europe 72 that weren't ever on a studio album uh and Mm -hmm. and um and so that those are the definitive versions of some of these songs and um and a lot of the vocals are overdubbed so it's like very accessible and you know it's a very clean recording very polished and so that was kind of what really clicked first for me and it was just kind of you know i remember getting into like Ramble on, Rose and Mister Charlie and some some of these, you know, just the grooves are so undeniable. And like Jerry's playing and just, you know, it's hard to talk about it in a way that isn't uh, kind of cliche. But um, but you know, yeah, I mean, and and, and that was kind of um, at least early in my kind of dead fandom. That that early seventies era is really what got me because they're they're so tight at the time, but like. You know they're well established with their songs. They've been together for a while, so they like you know figured out how to sing, which at first wasn't a given. And mm-hmm. um, and you know it's kind of I, I find that uh, it's interesting. Earlier, you used the word like Byzantine, and and I find you know the late seventies is an era of Dead that is very beloved by fans. I love it too, but sometimes it can be almost a little bit like magisterial, almost like kind of mm-hmm. like a, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance to it. And it's very good, but. Um, I always found like, you know, Europe 72 and then, you know, kind of live stuff from 73 and 74, they, well, first of all, in the early seventies was a brief period in their history where they only had one drummer instead of the two drummer format. Mickey Hart wasn't in the band at the time. And Mm -hmm. I've always found that, um, that they're just, there's a little bit more fleet footed, you know, they're kind of able to, and and you don't get a ton of that on Europe 72 because it is a lot more of of the songs and, and fewer of the long jam set to centerpieces, but you still can hear it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So that was, I guess, what stood out to me at first. Yeah. And, and also just the idea of um, like, you can really hear Phil Lesh so so well, you know, some, some shows uh, he's, he can be kind of buried in the mix. And I think that he's a really important kind of, everybody focuses on Jerry, but like Phil being in there is really important.
0: Yeah. And that's a, so that's another interesting question I sort of had was like, what are, it, it, that you're like that granular to be like this bass you know, you can hear this, this player especially well, like, is that what you're like listening to when you're going through sort of like, you know, random shows that are on the internet? Are you like, what are you listening for as like a thing that you're like, this was, is what makes this show great to me?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so it's interesting because you know all four of the live albums that we're looking at in the Vinyl Me Please uh, set—they're all—they're all, um, they're all uh, culled from various tours or or stands at, at a given mm-hmm. venue, and so the, so you're you kind of like the dead kind of you know Frankensteined together some of their best stuff from like a given set of shows, and that, that's really cool and. Um, but when you're like looking at a full, you know, live show, there is a lot to sift through sometimes because they, sometimes the set list would be fairly repetitive. And so, you know, certain things that like I look for when I'm getting into a show, you know, um, uh, a lot of the time their first sets will be kind of, you know, loaded with a lot of, I guess, what would colloquially be called your first set songs. So you're going to have, you know, uh, some of the deads, shorter songs, you know, like whatever, uh, a Bertha or, or something. And then you're also going to have, you know, they would mix in a lot of, you know, Chuck Berry covers or, um, mm-hmm. or Big River by Johnny Cash was one that they played a lot. And, um, you know, kind of more of a party vibe. And, but, but you can hear though, if, if, if you're, if you know what to listen to, you can hear if they're on or not, because, you know, some shows they'll be slow out of the gate and other ones, they're like right there. And then, you know, most like, most of the time the first set will have one like kind of um not as deep of a jam as they're going to get into in the second set but they will have you know a common one is like music never stopped might be at the end of a first set and they'll go for whatever 10 minutes and and you can kind of hear if they're like do they have their like jam caps on that night i guess (laughs) um yeah but like just generally speaking i mean you know um definitely kind of what i said before just just the the, I like the one drummer format best. I mean, obviously I like all of it, but that's kind of what I've always gravitated toward. Also you know another important thing um, for anybody getting into the band is the uh, the keyboard player. It's kind of like uh mm-hmm. you know if you're a Harry Potter fan, it's kind of like the defense against the dark arts teacher. like they had kind of <laughs> they had kind of a rotating, yeah sequence of them that were always kind of like ill-fated and and stuff and um Mm -hmm. and uh it's like
0: the drummer from spinal tap yeah 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 yeah. Um, they're (laughs) very
2: very, very important though um so in the 70s you had uh you had keith godchow and at the same time his uh his wife donna jean godchow was uh singing with the band and um and keith's playing is it was mostly you know on piano and it was very uh it sounds it's a lot more traditional sounding, and mm-hmm. I mean he's a brilliant um, he's a brilliant piano player, and and especially in the mid seventies really helped push the band into kind of these like jazzy territories. And then you know in the eighties they had Brent Midland, who's uh, a very different flavor. And it took took mm-hmm. me a, it took me a while to get into eighties Dead um, because he has a very different flavor. You've got this kind of like eighties synthie sound, and he has this kind of like falsetto that uh (laughs) it took a while for it to grow on me um Mm -hmm. so you know that's another big thing to listen listen for
0: yeah um something that i have sort of been like personally trying to work through is like i think one of my issues with like getting into live dead is that the bands that i like that i love the most Uh, their live experience is basically just like you're listening to the record really loud, you know, like you're never, uh, you're never there to hear like, you know, Julian Casablancas give you something different, you know, (laughs) like you're there to hear, you're there to hear New York city cops. Like that's it. And I think that's something that I'm starting to like learn to appreciate with like, especially starting to toe dip into this, like the wider, like beyond the four albums that we're featuring is like, the thing that the dead have is that like anything could be different on every show and because it's so exhaustively like you know documented you can like actually hear that and that's like a thing that i guess i have never considered yeah. in, in any like live experience you know? i, I or, mean
2: like, it gets so granular like um like i uh i follow this this blog um save your face that they basically kind of put together like random like like compilations of various like, you know, uh, from various eras of of dead, but they even get so granular as recently they dropped a hour long mega mix of something called the Mind Left Body Jam that's like in several uh, jams in 1973 and 1974. And they stitched all the, or like two dozen of them together. And, and, uh, you know, it can get so granular as you said.
0: so that's the end of the interviews for episode two the first of the two that we'll have that are diving deeper into the live grateful dead and i think me and amelia both had the idea of sort of keeping you guys up to date with you know how we're feeling about the grateful dead at at this juncture and i would say that uh for me You know, I said uh, in this interview with David Lemieux about, you know, somebody telling me that you can hear everything, all of American music in The Grateful Dead. And I, I would say that that didn't click for me until I was listening to Europe 72. And it really came sort of as like a revelation moment to me. I had my big can headphones on and was out mowing my lawn. And listened to Europe seventy two, uh, basically from the No You the China Rider until the end, and was like realizing that this was pretty perfect. You know that I, it was a Saturday morning at eight a.m. and I got it. I I don't know that I'm at you know uh, follow the you know reunited Grateful Dead on tour level or uh, even you know, able to, to tell you that I really like, you know, the full show from Stockholm in 1978, but I, I will say, you know, live from Europe, 72, uh, that album is for real. <laughs> it, uh, the, us putting it in this box set makes sense. And it, it's just so good that run, you know, from Ramble on Rose, uh, it's just I, I have really like come to appreciate that. And I think the thing that I'm taking from from these first two albums is really that I, I think my favorite era of the dead so far is this like nineteen seventy two era where you get a blending of the sort of psychedelic stuff that they were doing on Live Dead, which I appreciate. but like maybe, a little bit less than some of the Americana and, you know, cause like I said, working man's dead and American beauty are my two favorite dead albums. And yeah, I just think the blend of like the psychedelic and the Americana and everything that you get, like you get so much on Europe 72 that it's, it's just uh, it's an undeniable beast. It's a, it's an incredible album and you know, I, I did look up how much it would cost to buy a Europe seventy two t-shirt. So, you know, I'm I think I'm I think I'm getting there. I'm 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 approaching deadhead status. I maybe have like a foot on the bus at this point.
1: So that's where I'm at right now. love you the best and I love bid you, good, you good, night. Night. good night good night
0: good night and I bid this you season night. of the VMP Anthology podcast is good executive night. produced, written and hosted good by Amelia Sutliff and me, Andrew Winestorfer
1: and
0: it's I produced by night. Gabe Harder with assistance from Jonah Graber this episode was recorded in my home office so shout out to my dog Arthur for not barking during it a special thanks to David Lemieux and Eric Renner Brown for coming on to Talk the Dead with a relative newcomer to the bus. And remember, listen to more rat dog.
1: Good night to me.